Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academics in conversation. For this month, we are going to discuss The Emerald Advocate, The Jade Jurist, The Olive Attorney, The Barrel Barrister, The Council Chartouse, The Malachite Mouthpiece, The Lime Litigator, The Pea-Patterned Pettifogger, and so forth. I am Dr. Michael Hancock, and today we are going to be discussing none other than the Marvel superhero slash lawyer She-Hulk. Specifically, we'll be discussing the 2004 She-Hulk run written by Dan Slott with art by Juan Babillo and Paul Peltier, and the recent 2016 run by Mariko Tamaki with art by Nico Leon, Georges Duarte, Julian Lopez, and Francesco Gaston. Anna will also be providing a review of the academic book Wonder Women, Feminism, and Superheroes by Lillian S. Robinson. Joining me, as always, are my co-hosts. I am Anna Picard. I am a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University. And I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I am a lecturer at the University of Waterloo, St. Jerome's campus. Uh, first, Anna, would you tell us a bit about the Dan Slot run? So this month we read and we'll be discussing the entire 12 issues of a series from 2004 that is technically called She-Hulk Volume 1, which is written by Dan Slott with art by Juan Babilo. I say technically because this is actually the third She-Hulk solo series since the character's creation in 1980, not counting the She-Hulk graphic novel from 1985. In case there are any listeners who are somehow not aware of this already, the numbering of shared continuity universe superhero comics is complicated at best. She-Hulk's previous solo series were titled The the Savage She-Hulk, rather, so many S's, oh, and The Sensational She-Hulk. That makes the series we are reading, which is simply called She-Hulk Volume 1 of that title. We're all clear now? Um, Let's talk a little bit about the backstory of the character, just so we're all on the same page. So She-Hulk, a.k.a. criminal defense attorney Jennifer Walters, is the cousin of original Hulk Bruce Banner, who saved Jen's life through a blood transfusion that transforms her into a less out-of-control and considerably sexier big green monster. She was originally created to assert copyright over the She-Hulk name, just in case the then-very-popular Incredible Hulk television series tried to swoop in and steal it. But from that inauspicious origin, she's become one of Marvel's premier female superheroes. In addition to her numerous solo series, she's been a member of the Fantastic Four and a longtime member of the Avengers. Her notoriety has suffered a bit, though, I think, due to her as yet, but not much longer, absence from Marvel's live-action movies and TV shows. I never thought I'd live to see the day where more people would be fans of Groot than She-Hulk, but this is the world (laughs) we live in. Nonetheless, up until relatively recently, She-Hulk was, based on the number and longevity of her various solo series, Marvel's most successful female superhero. This was acknowledged by Marvel in the 2010 Women of Marvel event, which was linked to the 30th anniversary of She-Hulk's creation. If you enjoyed that rather long digression into the complications of continuity, you're going to love Slot and Mobila's She-Hulk, which sounds like a dig, but I promise it's not, and I will explain. Um, Since the sensational She-Hulk series from the 1990s, written and drawn for much of its run by John Byrne, it's become standard for comics starring She-Hulk to be a mix of action, cheesecake, and fourth-wall-breaking humor that often comments on the more ridiculous aspects of comic book superhero storytelling. Slav and and Bobilo's series is no exception. In this series, um, the most important part of the law office's library is its collection of superhero comic books, which, because they are licensed adaptations of the real adventures of the Marvel heroes, can be used to cite precedent in the world of superhuman law. 
Getting back to basics just a bit, the initiating incident of Slot and Bobilo's She-Hulk series is Jen being forced to reckon with the consequences of choosing to live her entire life as her much stronger, sexier, and more outgoing alter ego. In the series' first issue, Jen helps save the world and wins a high-profile case in what we're told is record time. She's also fired from her law firm after an opposing legal team successfully argues her status as a superhero unduly prejudices juries. She's also kicked out of Avengers Mansion for her wild parties and reckless misuse of equipment and guest passes. And in what Jen views as the greatest indignity of all, she's dumped by her boy toy, a German underwear model known as Mika, because he's looking for someone with more depth. While drowning the sting of her misfortunes and booze, Jen is approached by Holden Holloway, co-founder of the prestigious law firm Goodman, Lieber, Kurtzberg, and Holloway. For those eagle-eared among you, <laughs> that's an expression. <laughs> um, the name is a play on the real-life founders of the Marvel Universe, publisher Martin Goodman, plus the birth names of Stanley and Jack Kirby. Holloway wants to hire Jen, but he doesn't want She-Hulk. He wants plain old human Jen Walters. Jen agrees, resumes her human form, and promptly throws up and collapses on Holloway's feet, She-Hulk having a much higher alcohol tolerance than the mere human Jen. The rest of the series is a mix of zany humor and self-discovery that stays true to the spirit of She-Hulk that had been established up to this point, while pushing her in a new, in a new direction that adds, dare I say, some much-needed depth to her character. It's not a perfect series by any means, which we'll talk about in due course, but it is smart and it is a lot of fun. It's that rare series, I would argue, that's both a good jumping-on point for new readers and a treat for many long-term fans. Andrew, would you tell us about the Tamaki run? Yes. Uh, the Hulk is part of a long-standing tradition of narratives in the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde vein, which posit the division of the self into rational, civilized behavior on one side and repressed primal desire on the other. A She-Hulk, for me, is a wonderfully compelling opportunity to explore how that fundamental duality, or splitting to use Freud's term, becomes entangled with concepts of gender. Simply put, we know that the things men repress are not always the same things that women do as a result of a litany of societal forces. As a site of metaphorical eruption, however, She-Hulk as a metaphor can explore those issues in really compelling ways. This is not, however, the path that John Byrne laid out for the character. At all. Unlike Byrne or Slot, Tamaki takes sexuality out of the picture here, nearly entirely, which has good effects as well as bad. On the one hand, it's really nice to get to know Jennifer as a character who isn't so largely defined by her sexuality. One might even wonder if Tamaki's approach is in direct response to David Goyer's controversial 2014 comments on the character, suggesting that she's just an empty sex symbol. Uh, on the other hand, sexuality would seem to be an important element of the raging id metaphor. For my part, I'm happy without it, so long as other creators on the character have it covered. And boy, do they. In this sense, I would describe my take on Tamaki's take on Jennifer Walters as refreshing, so long as we consider it within the broader continuity of the character. The story also works quite effectively as a meditation on trauma, with the character of Maisie Brown, a woman who has been shut into her apartment after her partner tried to kill her, serving as a foil for Jennifer's less literal shutting in, which manifests as an intense fear of her own alter ego. This is a major turn for the character, as Jennifer Walters is perhaps best known for her sense of confidence and for her frequent love of being a superhero, in direct contrast to the long-suffering dourness of most Marvel characters, male or female. With great power comes a great deal of irrational angst at times. Uh, Tamaki's run begins with Hulk number one in December of 2016. We're covering the first arc here, and the pace is different than we might expect. There's a sense of stillness to the work at times that grounds the slow-paced story and helps to portray the contrast between Jennifer's interior crisis and the somewhat banal nature of her legal profession. It's a really effectively executed slow burn for the character. 
We talk a lot in comic studies about how pivotal the superhero transformation scene is to the narrative propulsion of the story. And seeing that play out over six issues instead of one is really interesting to me and a testament to Tamaki's skill with character and plot. This isn't the most exciting She-Hulk story you'll ever read, but it's not trying to be. That's kind of the point. Tamaki makes me genuinely care about her iteration of Jennifer Walters, and while that iteration isn't as iconic or memorable as either Burns or Slots, I really enjoyed reading this and seeing a stripped-down take on a character who has traditionally been all about bombast. I like Jennifer Walters better in both Slots' run and even Burns' run, and no doubt in future runs, for having read Tamaki's. And in that sense, I think this is an underrated comics run on an iconic character. Since we already touched on this issue a bit in those respective introductions, it's maybe a good place to start. We have a character, She-Hulk, that foregrounds in her very title her femaleness. So what does it mean then to remove the she part of the name in Tamaki's run and identify her just as Hulk? How do these runs approach the issues of gender inherent in the character? I think maybe just to start us with an important bit of context, we know what was happening at Marvel at the time, uh, where you would have um, um, Laura Kinney got the title of Wolverine. Uh, we had a number of other characters who were um, traditionally rendered into female roles being given, like like female Thor, for example, as another one. Um, so this was part of a broader line-wide movement. Um, I, I think the effort is obviously to take the female characters out of that sort of derivative position, that, that, that hierarchy where they're perceived as... Um, um, subordinate to the actual Hulk. And I'm using the term actual, very deliberate in that sense, or the actual Wolverine. And She-Hulk is... We'll, we'll keep calling her She-Hulk, I think. <laughs> but uh, I'll make an argument as to why we should. <laughs> it's an interesting... Because they already did that with the Hulk. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amadeus Cho, uh, the aus- totally awesome mm-hmm. Hulk was running around at the same time as this series, right? Yep. Yeah, which is a little bit unfair to Amadeus, who... Or Amadeus. I, anyway, think maybe would fit that title a little bit better than Jen, but I will get into my reasons of why I don't like it. <laughs> um, so the She-Hulk name is problematic for a lot of reasons. I mean, that Andrew already talked about, right? I mean, there's also the sense that female superheroes get overdetermined by gender, much like black superheroes do, when they're mm-hmm. always like black lightning or like black whatever. And, you know, he's not white Captain America, right? They're overdetermined by by race. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a problem with the She-Hulk name as well. And yet... For me, one of the really effective and powerful things about Jen Walter's She-Hulk is that she is this character that does that concept of the feminine masquerade almost just as part of her character. If there is going to be a character that is sort of like a parody of ultra-femininity and a parody of like superhero tropes of like ultra-sexualizing violence and ultra-sexualizing female power and able to subvert it, it's going to be She-Hulk. Has that always been done effectively? Definitely not. But it's one of the potentials of the character that is like part of why she has such a passionate female fan base, myself included. Kind of reclaiming the ridiculous name of She-Hulk is part of what She-Hulk does. And when you take that away, it takes away some of what I think is potentially interesting about the character. So she's just one character that I'm like, okay to an extent with her being She-Hulk because it just it's essential to her that contradiction. And I just... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, it's so much her name for me that I, I don't 
I think that there are a lot of reasons why Hulk just really didn't stick for her, I think. I can think of characters who bring up similar things in Mm -hmm. DC, that Mm -hmm. you could make an argument for Wonder Woman Mm -hmm. on similar lines, although very different. Yeah, depending on the writer. And Power Girl, Mm -hmm. again, defending Mm -hmm. very much on the writer. (laughs) Very, very much. She-Hulk even more directly, though, because, I mean, she, like, transforms into... If we think about the cover of the very first issue of Savage She-Hulk, she transforms into this character that's frightening because of her power and frightening because of her sexuality. Mm -hmm. She is both of those things and the public is running away from her because either of those things can be scary on their own or the combination of those things can be scary, right? But the scariness is part of the potential. Mm. At the same time that the sexy sexification of the Hulk is problematic, like it creates new possibilities as well. Well, you use the term masquerade, which I really mm. like, um, but that depends on irony. It does. So it does. how do you... That's one of the problems with... Well, that's what I'm wondering, too. Like, like even in something like John Byrne, which is very male gaze-ish, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if I'd call it irony, but it at least mm-hmm. has self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Is yes. that enough like, for you to put that into masquerade? It depends on which Byrne issue we're talking about. <laughs> right, um, right. The jump rope and the nude issue, I think, is problematic. Mm-hmm. Too problematic to be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, explain a little bit of what that is for our <laughs> listeners. So it's this issue of She-Hulk in which she seemingly jumps rope in the nude. So this is the Sensational She-Hulk series by John Byrne from the 90s. She seemingly jumps rope in the nude for five pages. It's revealed at the end that it was just an illusion because, you know, the blur marks were disguising the fact that she's actually wearing a tiny bikini, so it doesn't really make that much difference. But the creepy thing about it is, A, that the issue has a cover in which She-Hulk looks very upset and is trying to, like, awkwardly cover herself while the editor is suggesting that she has to take off her clothes for the readership. Inside the issue, it suggests this was She-Hulk's idea, so you already have, like... A conflict there that's a problem but I, it's not an issue that I find particularly fun because of some of those it's the cover really that I have the most issue with with that example because the cover mm. is very rapey yeah. you know like it's very like She-Hulk take off all of your clothes and She-Hulk looks afraid mm. and that's like really that's I could almost forgive the scene itself if it wasn't for that. Yeah. Portraying the character as someone sexually powerful. But that's like a typical example of kind of the sexual humor from the burn run. You know, he situates She-Hulk as being doing her self-objectification because she wants to, because it's an aspect of her agency, because it's an aspect of her power, right? And that just becomes a way to justify more and more, you know, sexual objectification throughout the series. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. Um, I think maybe an interesting sort of theoretical intersect here would be um, Hillary Shute's work in Graphic Women mm-hmm. uh, and some other scholars as well talking about how one of the ways that you take a character out of the masculine gaze is by having them them look at you, like literally just, mm-hmm. just look at the reader. And She-Hulk is constantly doing that. We're, might, we're going to talk about the fourth wall break. Mm-hmm. So that certainly lends itself to what you're saying about the masquerade. Well, what that also lends itself to is one of my complaints that often one of the things that's missing from scholars who only choose to talk about non-superhero comics is that you have examples from superhero comics that seem to undercut that argument. Mm -hmm. She-Hulk looks at us all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't think it makes her not appealing to the male gaze. I don't think it makes her challenging the male gaze. Yeah, you could argue it's a sort of... um, um almost what I'm looking for, almost like a, like an insincere apologetic mm-hmm. gesture towards that whilst at the same time, clearly everything yeah. about the comic itself is inviting the gaze yeah. that she's denying. Like the gesture of self-awareness actually invites the male gaze. <laughs> so but that's really like, interesting too. Because it is in, interesting. In a lot of those comics, sophisticated. the character is in dialogue with mm-hmm. John Byrne, mm-hmm. who is very much framed as mm-hmm. he, he wants to sexualize her yeah. and she does like, yeah. man. 
It is, it's a very complex thing. It's like I'm so much yeah. into John Burns. There's, there's a really interesting issue of that series too. Just my our last thing on it. We we had a big long discussion about which She Hulk series we were going to do, and we were really contemplating doing the Burn. We're like, no, let's do a couple more recent ones. That I think we maybe. all read Burn anyway. Yeah, uh, yeah. But um, there's a really great one where various artists are kind of doing. Um, an interpretation of She-Hulk in their styles. Yes. And there's like a Jim Lee one. And there's a really funny Frank Miller one where he like makes fun of himself and does her like all hard-boiled and noir. And I was like, this was a <laughs> remarkable level of self-consciousness from Frank Miller that I do not think he would be capable of now. But it, it sort of made me nostalgic for the Frank Miller we could have had. But anyway, the, to sum up, the Burn series is very complicated and very interesting. Um, it does set up a new status quo for the character that is largely responsible for her continued popularity, so we yep. have to give it credit for that. Um, me saying that I ultimately think it's more problematic than not is not saying that it's not an interesting series. And it's actually a series I enjoy a lot that I've taught um, in various classes and that the students have enjoyed a lot as well. As we've established, uh, Burns' run features She-Hulk as a character who has a meta-awareness of her role as a superhero. Do you see any degree of meta-awareness of the genre at play in either of these two works? And if so, to what end is that being done? I think I should probably answer first by saying no. Like, I, I think Tamaki's largely stripping that out. Yeah, I mean, the Slot series is much more in line with the Burn series, though less overt, I would say. It's sort of woven into the narrative more. I mean, the mm -hmm. Burn series, you'd have more stuff like, again, She-Hulk directly turning to John Bird and being like, Toad Man Burn, really? You're making me fight Toad Man? I'm mm -hmm. just going to jump from this panel up to the top panel and avoid this situation. You know, she would just say stuff directly like that. To the, you don't have that going on in the Slot series, but you do have stuff like I mentioned in the intro where... You know, they have this catalog of Marvel comic books that because those are the licensed adventures of the real characters, they like use that to prosecute cases, right? It's their um, legal precedent. Yeah. And you also have moments of commentary on kind of She-Hulk's role in the superhero universe and stuff. Well, but, it, but again, kind of blended into the narrative. You do have some discussion and commentary on the sexualization of the character at various points. Um, she's kicked out mm -hmm. of Avengers Mansion kind of for having too many guys over and like being too boisterous and like all of these things, which is like totally a moment of slut shaming that does get brought up later in the series where She-Hulk asks Iron Man directly. It's not actually from the issues we're reading today, but she does ask Iron Man directly at one point, like why can you sleep around and get called a playboy and why do I get called a slut? <laughs> so you do have this commentary present, but again, it's more woven into the narrative rather than just like her turning around and saying it at you. Why do you think that happened or like neither of these series get that too far into the element? Is it? Deadpool has claimed that kind of meta thing for Marvel, or hmm. is it just they're taking a different tact? Yeah, I mean, I think some of those elements have become cliche in a certain sense, and I do think you're probably right about the Deadpool thing to an extent. I also wonder, though, that part of it can be an effort to kind of reclaim She-Hulk as a character a little mm. bit. Like, I mean, she was such an image of Burn, like, in that original right. series. Mm -hmm. Like, even though she's talking back to him, it's Burn having She-Hulk talk back to him. His author presence is just so strong there. Mm -hmm. Whereas I see a lot in the Slot series, and I don't think it does this perfectly, which I want to talk about, but foregrounding her as a character a little bit more because the struggle that she's going with about who is Jennifer Walters and who is She-Hulk and who do I want to be that she's going through in that series, that's not 
she didn't go through those kind of psychological struggles in Burns series. She was more of like an idea mm-hmm. in Burns series and more of a character in Slot series, I would argue. And taking away some of those meta elements maybe serves that a little bit. I agree. I think Tamaki's going for a grim and gritty tone in hers in contrast Very to different. Slot's. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, this is simplistic, but I kind of see like a, a clear progression from Burn to Slot to Tamaki in terms of getting progressively more and more sort of character-oriented, less self-aware, and um, very interior, I guess, in a way that She-Hulk isn't uh, in Burns' run at all. She's, again, this this very um, extroverted character whose internal thought processes amount to literally what she's doing while she's fighting, right? She's not thinking about sort of deeper implications and effects. Uh, Even the idea that Tamaki surfaces of Jennifer suffering trauma specifically like psychological trauma there's gestures towards that in slot but it's not there yet Uh, so i I do think we're seeing kind of a almost a linear progression with the character in that sense and and i know a lot of people don't like the tamaki run for that because it takes away a lot of the fun and i'm not gonna lie i would consider the slot run superior well that yeah i think that goes into another thing i wanted to touch on and it kind of relates to the meta sense that Burn really associated the character with humor in general. Right. Slot's She-Hulk run came in a point at his work at Marvel where he was heavily associated with humor comics, humor superhero comics, with mm-hmm. uh, the Great Lake Avengers and the Spider-Man Human Torch series. Mm-hmm. And often when a character gets associated with humor, that's it sticks. Right. Like... It usually relegates them to a secondary status. Yes. I hate Great Lake's Avengers. Because we're not supposed to be... <laughs> yeah. We're not supposed to... Humor is not as, I don't know, epic. Yeah. And um, Deadpool being the notable yeah. exception there. And Harley Quinn to an extent. Yeah. Uh, a, a character like Gwenpool, the fact that she is kind of a joke is built in now. And I don't know what uh, Squirrel Girl looks like post... Well, that's that's an, that's an ex- like post Ryan North yeah. and Erica Henderson. Because but... I mean, that's sort of an example of that auteurship thing where it's like that, that character feels yeah. so owned by them now that I can't really imagine someone else taking it on. So... Like, we have a Tamaki run here that strips She-Hulk of her humor for the most part. The yeah. one That one date issue that tries to go humor, it really doesn't work. Yeah, that was maybe one of the worst ones. Well, we've, we've talked about this issue before, but what we're talking about here is, in, in some people's eyes, the term they might use is character assassination, right? Because we're, we're, we're destroying the things that are iconic of the character. It, because and it's a some gender people thing. definitely seen Tamaki's run as that. Yeah. Um, first off, I should point out, Tamaki has stated in interviews that she was mandated. It very much felt like. Yeah, well, it, we'll get into. This uh, wasn't necessarily her yeah, pure interpretation of the character. We'll, we'll get into issues of uh, intersecting with uh, larger superhero events later. But like, is that vulnerability we talked about this with Batgirl Burnside? That that, that vulnerability of um, a female character for being reinterpreted maybe more prominently than a male character mm-hmm. is that kind of a form of fridging? Well, I mean, it makes me very frustrated with the Tamaki Ran. I'm one of those people that didn't, like, love it. Um, I I just, I think that character had a really solid identity. And to suggest Mm -hmm. that she doesn't by doing such a radical re-envisioning hurts me a little bit. I mean, there's an, there are other series between the slots. Like, the slot series actually runs for quite a long time. And then there's uh, another series by Charles Soule and Javier Polito that I actually is my favorite She-Hulk series, which I really considered putting with these wonderful covers by Kevin Wada as well, mm-hmm. which I really considered having us do. I, I just don't think it's... Um, 
it holds together as well as kind of a reboot as the character. I don't think it was as useful for conversation, although I really loved that series. So, I mean, to suggest that Jen Walters needs a re-envisioning, mm-hmm. I find like a little bit frustrating. I mean, I found that frustrating for Batgirl too. It's like that I character mean, had been around for the, so long. The larger question of like, does this, what does it mean to reinterpret a character in such a way? Like, I think this really points to the fact that our pool of female solo titles yeah. are so small. Right. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of Marvel, too, that's a real problem. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a little bit more about Marvel on the podcast in general than DC for the most part. DC has better female superheroes. Like, they have a wide, longer history, storied mm-hmm. pool of female characters to, cho- to choose from. Um, Marvel, their two most prominent female superheroes are Carol Danvers and, you know, in her various identities as Ms. Marvel and Captain Marvel and She-Hulk. Mm-hmm. And She-Hulk, because she hasn't been in any live-action adaptations, like has kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit. And both are problematic for their mm-hmm. past histories, and both are problematic for, I mean, as you mentioned, from well, what the motivation was for creating them in the first place. Mm-hmm. Maybe both the one you could add there is dispute. Black Widow, but she so consistently like falls into femme fatale stereotypes. And now. she hasn't mm-hmm. been a solo character in Not... the same way that those other ones have been. Wait, like she's had she's had attention. she's had a number of solo series, yes, but, but usually limited. Yeah, so, yes. yeah, yeah. Not she hasn't been as long running as kind of um, Ms. and Captain Marvel and She-Hulk. But um, getting back to our original question of, of humor, I've done a conference paper on She-Hulk in the past where I talked about um, the use of satire in the series specifically, mm. and the good and bad of that in terms of how the series, various She-Hulk series, are kind of representing female strength, female empowerment, and it is really a problem because. By making it funny, you can make the whole concept of a woman being strong funny and right. just completely like eliminate the empowerment aspect of that because it's just a joke, mm-hmm. right? And that's a real problem. And it's a problem that I don't think the slot series gets away from. I mean, one of the so one of the interesting but problematic um parts of the 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 twelve issues that we're talking about today is um, so as human Jen Walters, she never works out, right? She's like, why do I have to? You know, she's like in the gym and she's just like chilling because she doesn't have to work out because she's She-Hulk. And then she gets put in this gladiatorial battle as She-Hulk on a faraway planet and stuff and realizes that if I worked out as Jen, I could be stronger as She-Hulk. And she goes through this whole thing. And it's interesting figuring out how to read that run, A, because I don't think it ended up having anything any idea of how to like conclude that other than to find a way mm-hmm. to get her some to get rid of some of this strength because she was too strong and wasn't looking sexy enough but also just that was played for humor in like some ways and like that kind of negates what could be empowering about kind of that story and like it's that perfect melange of complications that makes She-Hulk both very interesting and very problematic right because if she's going to be played for humor then her power can just become a joke right yep well it's it's interesting to compare her to other humor comics mm. or humor-related superhero comics because, at least as Slot portrays her, I don't think of her being written as quippy in mm-hmm. a way that a lot of these co- comic or humor superheroes are. Mm-hmm. It's more she is put into situations that are mm-hmm. comedic. Mm-hmm. And her delivery usually, I mean, if I think about her kind of personality as her line delivery, she's more of a dry observational kind of, well, either shouty or dry observational. So either direct or dryly observational. In general, the jokes are less at her expense, but the ones that are feel bad frequently because they have to do with gender. Yeah, I know. 
Because when it is at her expense, it's <laughs> it's usually because her clothes are pooped away and she has to find yeah. them in her underwear. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she might comment on how that's sexist, but it doesn't really change the fact that it is. Right. Yeah. So often a comic title that's about a single superhero is rounded out by their supporting cast. Characters that aren't necessarily superheroes, but their presence fleshes out the character and fleshes out the world they inhabit. What marks a good supporting cast and how successful in terms of a good supporting cast do you think these two runs are? Maybe I'll start just because that's a real focus of the slot series. Mm -hmm. It's like developing a supporting cast for her. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the things that the series does best although with reservations which i will talk about but um the series really deliberately sets up kind of a new status quo for she hulk in a lot of ways you know she's starting work at this new law office that specializes in superhuman law which is obviously a great premise and setup for her that i'd be very surprised if they don't go with that for the t-hulk she-hulk tv series Mm -hmm. so we get a lot of useful kind of secondary characters introduced there's kind of like this shapeshifter guy who delivers messages there's uh, this guy pug what what's his actual name? Oh, who knows? It's like something. It's some play <laughs> on like pugilism. Anyway, boxers. Anyway, awesome, Andy. Yeah, awesome. Oh. So the Mad Thinkers Android, um, awesome Android gets re redone as Awesome Andy, the office intern. Um, he's wordless, but he can write messages on his Android screen. Um, he later has a romance with the female uh, lawyer in the office, which is problematic. And it's yeah. in the run that we didn't read, so let's not talk about it, just to bring it up. <laughs> so Pug has has kind of a, a interest in She-Hulk mm-hmm. romantically, and she doesn't see those affections necessarily. Um, we also have the boss at the law office, uh, Holden Holloway, um, and he has a daughter, Southpaw, who is a supervillain. Um, Granddaughter, I think. Granddaughter, that's right. Mm-hmm. Granddaughter Southpaw, who is a supervillain that She-Hulk later becomes somewhat of a, a mentor to. Um, so it's it's a great cast of characters. Oh, and uh, Valerie Book, yes, right, her, is the nemesis rival, sexy bitch rival lawyer. I guess would be the stereotype of that character, but she gets complexified uh, throughout the series. Um, she's injured in a in a battle and develops a disability, and then gets into this relationship with the android anyway that doesn't necessarily go well but it is an effort to add complexity mm-hmm. to that character she doesn't stay this stone cold bitch character um stereotype um she does eventually bond with jen which is good anyway i think it does a really good job of setting up this cast the one complaint i would have oh i should have, there's also a fan surrogate character uh, a number oh, of yeah. them um the guy and that works Stu. in yeah Stu. Stu Cicero? Cicero. i think so yeah that works in the comic book library um, he becomes kind of that like author voice, fan mm-hmm. voice in the comic, you know, sort of commenting directly on continuity. And he has sort of a bunch of fanboys that he hangs out with, and which you're going to like that or you're going to hate it. <laughs> and there's a rotating, basically a rotating door of Marvel Universe mm-hmm. characters. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. Lots of, well, like J. Jonah Jameson's son, who becomes an interesting mm-hmm. character in this series, mm-hmm. who is also, sorry, what's his stupid man wolf. name? Manwolf. Yeah, he's a werewolf um, also, and he eventually gets engaged to Jen, but it turns out that they were being psychologically manipulated. A lot of stuff happens. Anyway, the issue that I have with the supporting cast of of Slot's She-Hulk is just that I feel sometimes like he keeps adding supplementary characters because he has a hard time sort of getting at Jen's psychology a little Mm. bit. 
And like, it's kind of like set up that we're supposed to identify with the pug character like a little bit because like he sees what would be right for Jen, which is to settle. Yeah, Yeah. which would be to settle down with him. And she keeps going off with like glamour boys like Manwolf and can't like see what's (laughs) actually good for her. I don't love that through line. It's not great. Um, There's a lot of like, she'll just be like wandering off to do something and we'll get a lot of reaction shots of him just being like, oh. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Especially because the series is written by a man and kind of get that kind of vibe a little bit. So that's one of my issues with the supporting cast. But all in all, I think it does a good job of kind of setting up a, a status quo that, that supports the character, I guess, which is what supporting characters are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. How about the Tamaki series? Uh, I think in the Tamaki series, maybe coming back to something you were saying earlier, I, I think the whole idea is to isolate her. Yeah. Uh, so we have these characters who have strong presence in her life, most notably um, Hellcat, Captain Marvel, and Bruce, or Bruce's not-quite-ghost. Uh, and they have these really, like, impactful scenes in most of those cases, but they're a really small portion of the comic. So, like, we don't see a lot of Captain Marvel. We barely have any interaction with Hellcat, even though that's Jim Jennifer's best friend. More in the later half, but yeah. Yeah, but, but in, in the initial run. Um, I, I think part of the initial run is about her deciding that she does need people yeah. in her life. So it, it makes sense to transition from that. I, I would say very quickly, one of the things I didn't like about the slot is that I think past the second issue, she doesn't spend much time with other female superheroes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think the Hellcat relationship is largely uh, something that was created in the earlier Hellcat series. And taken up on the... And the Charles Sule series, Sule, yeah, yeah, because she works for She-Hulk in the Kooky yeah. Law office that they have in that series. It's nice to see Jen with other female yeah. superheroes. Her and Hellcat are a good team, too, because they're both... That <laughs> wouldn't be the good way to put this. Both a bit bonkers, I guess I would put it that way. So they're kind of a good foil for each other. So, so sorry, I, I think the point was to isolate her um, and to mm-hmm. show her um, needing those lifelines that she doesn't have. Uh, and that also makes the relationship between um, Jen and She-Hulk, or in this case Hulk, maybe more interesting because it's all about the question of how much she should be relying on the Hulk identity. Ultimately, it's the Hulk identity surfaces because she's literally in physically danger of it. Um, so when we're talking about a story about essentially um, like a post-traumatic stress disorder, having this like invincible and vulnerable juggernaut being a thing that you can fall into, but a thing that you're also terrified of, to me that's an interesting dynamic. In a way, she's not afraid of transforming into She-Hulk. She's afraid of transforming into Hulk. Right. That's an interesting distinction. Well, but this almost brings up one of the issues I have with the Tamaki series, though, because to suggest that, like, one of the problems that Jen needs to deal with is she doesn't have this good support network. It's like, when? Since when? That's never been an issue for Jen. She's friends with everybody. Like, that's really never been an established issue for this character. So that's just out of the blue for me. I I can't defend this character in terms of consistency. You know what I mean? There's no way that that's that's gonna win. And you're right, like like she's a character who's known to have a good supportive network that she has no problem reaching out to. I I think the idea is- She's like the big sister to everybody in the Marvel Mm -hmm. Universe. Yeah, the idea is the trauma has um, um, caused her to disassociate. Uh, and, and I think that maybe works, but as you said, it's maybe too much of a leap for the character. And I've really, didn't like the gay intern character because mm-hmm. that's like all that was it that is his character i described I it in two words yep 
And I, there's a point where I think Hellcat goes, yeah, he's a really great guy. And I don't think they were ever on the same panel. Yeah, I mean, there's been a number of series from the same era starring female superheroes that have done queerness much better, I would argue, than this series, mm-hmm. surprisingly. I almost Especially felt like, for 2016, right? Yeah, I know. I almost felt like that character was just like inserted because like, hey, intersectionality, Which, <laughs> it feels a little up. weird for Tamaki, and there are yeah. so many queer it's characters. So it's so strange. It's so strange. Well, Tamaki's moving through a character based narrative so I, I think when she thinks about the characters that she's going to surround Jennifer with it's all about the foil relationships um, so we have a um, biographer slash journalist whatever you want to call it constantly reaching out to her and her constantly refusing I'm not ready to talk to you yet kind of thing which represents her not willing to deal with like her own issues uh, as I said we have her withdrawing from friends which represents her not using her support network we have her withdrawing from superheroes such as captain marvel which suggests her not wanting to be a part of that that life in that particular instance as i said like i I know this is an unpopular run i I totally get that i'm I'm moving uphill on this but the idea that you could have a six issue arc that is even readable about a character who transforms into a hulk not transforming into a hulk uh, I, I think that shows how good Tamaki is with these character dynamics. And as I said, like I, I really felt for this character, even though it's hard for me to read her as She-Hulk. Honestly, if that makes sense, um, that was one of the places that it really fell short for me. That <laughs> the pacing is just so <laughs> slow. I mean, I think it it would have helped me a lot if there was some scene at the beginning that really established this is why she is afraid of turning into the Hulk. Well, yeah, I think it's a really good contrast between the first issue of the Slot series and the first issue of the Tamaki series. The first issue of the Slot series, like regardless of whether you like it or don't like it, it's a really good superhero reboot first issue. It establishes who Jen was, it establishes what her new status quo is going to be, it establishes the main conflicts with the series, there is going to be a conflict between the Jen identity and the She-Hulk identity, this is like the substance of that conflict, this is the new context that that conflict is going to take place in, that all happens in 22 pages, Mm -hmm. and like we're ready for issue number two. It's a really solid first issue. Well, I see. Okay, so so here's my problem with with the Hulk. The Hulk is like a world slaughtering monster at this point, Mm -hmm. because it constantly escalates. So first he's someone who can like stop a bus, and then it's a train, and then it's a spaceship, and then it's again like like massive global scale, uh, and She-Hulk sort of trails in that because of again the kind of derivative nature of that that Hulk She-Hulk relationship. So I, I think what Tamaki's doing here, that stepping back and stepping down, is also extraordinarily difficult to to make you care again about the first transformation into the Hulk, to have these moments where the mm. eyes flash green, and to have that mean anything I, I think she's doing amazing like yeoman service to this character even though i think the battle is you know maybe more than one writer can do but as i said i like what she did some context for both series both of these runs occur during larger crossover events where she hulk in particular is greatly affected by those events Uh, In Slot's case, it's Avengers Disassembled, where she was controlled by Scarlet Witch into going on a rampage and tears the Avenger vision literally in half. Uh, In Tamaki's case, it's Civil War II, where she is put into a a coma by Thanos and her cousin Bruce is killed before she woke up. And Mm -hmm. there are kind of two issues here that I'm going to divide out that I think are both important to talk about. First, 
What do you think of of series having to incorporate these major crossover events into the story? Does that work as a launch pad or does it just derail everything? And second, particularly with Tamaki's run, but a little bit in slots as well, how effective do you think their approach to the character dealing with these traumas was? Okay. So, well, the Tamaki one, I'm again going to have to like defer and apologize because the idea that she'd be traumatized by this iteration of almost dying Mm -hmm. in a career (laughs) of, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. I mean, they even had to do a retcon. Even had to do a bit of a retcon <laughs> where originally she was put into the coma by just a war machine missile hitting her, mm. and then like, no, no, it was it was Thanos' sword. Mm. I'm like, okay, yeah. So I mean, for me, that, since that's when not is working. she so close to Bruce? Like since now? That is also geared up a little bit. We've gotten glimpses of it in earlier runs, but it's never been a major facet no. of the character. Yeah, think, so it seems like we're adding pathos. I think it would have been easier, like. Get rid of the attachment to Bruce part and make it more about the fear of I don't want to be I don't want to end up a monster in the way that Bruce was. Yeah, yeah, that could have worked. Okay, this gets me back to what I was just about to complain about a second ago, though, which is that <laughs> to make her have this like sort of schizoid kind of personality, mm-hmm. it's going backwards a little bit. Like what was so revolutionary about her is that she's a monster that loves being a monster and enjoys being a monster and isn't frightened and terrified by it at all because it just is different, right? Like Bruce Banner transforming into, you know, a hyper masculine like monster that's so like anti his like personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, ongoing threat of the character is him dealing with the anger issues that he's suppressed that like come out in the form of the Hulk. I think what's suggestively different about Jen Walters versus She-Hulk, even though she's sort of shyer and less outgoing as Jen Walters She-Hulk, she doesn't have all that like rep- repressed anger, and that's why her version of the Hulk isn't like that. Like to give her that to just sort of transpose Bruce's story onto her is taking away something that's unique about the character, and it's also like making her a monstrous out of control woman, which is just making her fit into a trope that she was actually resisting before. Mm-hmm. So I find that very frustrating. It's actually very similar to the She-Hulk romance novel, um, mm. The She-Hulk Diaries, which makes her refer to herself and She-Hulk as totally separate people, and she gets put under the care of a male psychiatrist to deal with this problem. That is problematic for so many ways. To have her not in control of her powered self, yeah. to have her not acknowledge it as part of herself, that's definitely going backwards. Absolutely. And I just saw that a little bit in the Tamaki run. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit of like original Ms. Marvel where she doesn't know she's Ms. Marvel right. and she has to deal with this like schizoid personality and it's just like, come on, that's like a female trope. That's a, that's a trope of female superheroes that's been done to death. She-Hulk was the exception to that rule. I don't feel like going back to that. But I mean, it, it's, it's a fundamental relationship of her character right her relationship to her alter ego i feel like you have to play with it and invert it and not just lock it in forever because even if we look at tamaki's run a lot of Mm -hmm. it is about resolving that schism Mm -hmm. right so it's not like jennifer walters is as we know her as someone who has a positive relationship with her alter ego is gone forever it's just we're gonna you know roll it back and but the problem give a new dimension the problem being that it didn't feel like it earned the split yes which I mean, part of that is the fact that Civil War II itself as a whole event wasn't very well received or good. Uh, Part of it was Jen's role in it Mm -hmm. doesn't, I mean, as we said, there doesn't seem to be the dots that lead to the condition, from the condition to the state. Yeah, I'm, again, consistency is not a thing. I I mean, I can defend, it might be breaking everything, but I, I do like 
these variations. I mean, in a way, variations it would the almost be interesting in the wake of Civil War II. What if this had happened to Carol? But they couldn't do that with a Captain Marvel movie coming. Yes. Well, but I mean, it presents a good contrast with the slot series because she's also dealing with, you know, like, what is the difference between Jen and She-Hulk in that series? And yet to me, it's being dealt with in a way that I enjoy a lot more where she's like, you know, like, I am maybe like using She-Hulk as a little bit of a crutch to like not be myself or deal with some of my issues. I'm just escaping Mm -hmm. into She-Hulk a little bit, right? But she's not scared of She-Hulk. It does go a little bit to the other direction that it deals so little with the fallout from Civil War. Well, yeah, like in terms of that original... I mean, I think there's eventually a joke where the young Avengers vision goes, thanks for murdering the other guys so I can exist. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. But (laughs) I mean, I think it sort of benefits from not dealing with that because that was just a rotten story. Yeah, it benefits from going, well, that was kind of ridiculous. Let's keep going. Yeah. I mean, we know the issue in comics of um, uh, associating grim dark with like serious and meaningful uh, and I think and Tamaki's been accused of that. Uh, yeah. I don't think she falls into it. I, I think, again, I, I like what she's doing as a variation on the character that will allow us to maybe eventually come back to status quo in well, an interesting way. let's talk about the first arc in that context, because it does contrast her with another character who's going through a similar isolation. Yeah, a very convenient parallel. Yeah. How well is that done in your... I like it as... Um... Okay, I shouldn't quote things that we talked about on our previous podcast. Um, yes, you absolutely. should, because you should. people to go back <laughs> and listen to it. They should be listening to all the episodes. Uh, well, we, we talked about how that in um, the Through the Woods podcast episode, which you should all listen to, um, that there's this really cool kind of connection where um, it seems like the two characters, the two female characters, have something in common. They'll unite against a common foe, and they don't because it's misdirected in chaos. I like that Maisie is set up as a nice foil for Jennifer, uh, who seems like somebody who's going through exactly what she's going through, who could therefore um, um, help in sort of the healing process. And no, it's the opposite. That that character turns on Jennifer and they have to literally fight and the only way to get around her is through the emergence of the She-Hulk. I like that it's not a convenient or easy answer. I like that it's a problematic ending. I think abandoning that character, though, is a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, like, That's fair. Yeah, pretending that, okay, we're done with this. She ends up being a person with a disability who's evil. Yay. Which is not <laughs> so the only times. time that uh, she's Shmaki not evil, dips though. into the that. disability is evil. That's, there is a distinction. <laughs> um, that's <laughs> not great either. It is not great. It's a little bit better. And also, it's not the only time Tamaki dips into the well of, and now Jen fights a mentally ill woman. Uh-huh. Yeah, actually, is everyone <laughs> she fights in this series someone suffering from a mental illness? Sometimes it's a physical. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, the two things are connected. Um, I didn't really occur to me until now, but maybe that's an interesting through line. Okay, well, getting back to that, like that, it's going like sort of grim and dark and everything, though. Like that's something that I just feel is such a pain in my heart about this series, though, because like it just is not true to the character. She's a highly feminine, highly boisterous character. Like to make her like. You know what she seems like? She seems like Jessica Jones in this series. Yes. Jen Walters is not Jessica Ooh, like Jones. Like right down to the scarves. Like times. exactly. It's just like <laughs> I it's just like that almost seems like a disrespect for like the femininity of the character, which is a disrespect for like 
it's feministly problematic to be frank like to be like that version of the character that cared about clothes that cared about fashion like it's interchangeable but also that's not serious enough if we're going to do a serious attempt to do this character then she has to be Jessica Jones like that's the only version of like a serious female character that we can have and I find that very frustrating but I think the point is that and again it's not her I'm not I I can't prove this The, the trauma she's suffering has transformed her so actually seeing her be inconsistent as a character in some ways actually speaks to the horrendousness of that occasion. I mean, I don't mind that. I, I would like a little more... Like... Cultivation make, and development. Make it explicit. Well, and I just don't find the trauma that she's going through I'm, in that series true to something... Yeah. that True to the way that Jen would respond to that situation. Totally agree. Like, I mean, again, in the Slot series if we're going to assume that she's responding to trauma in that series, she's responding to it by sleeping around, by partying, by being even more She-Hulk, right? And that becomes a you problem those that she has to do of her with. Trauma? I mean, If we're going to relate well, it to like, the larger events. I mean, uh, that was, uh, what's his name? Mark Wade's interpretation of Daredevil. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, like, I don't necessarily read it that way, but yeah, like, yeah. in terms of it being something has changed with her that got her kicked out of Avengers Mansion, that could be like a way I mean, of reading it. Th- that the kicking out definitely happened before disassembled because the mansion existed. Oh. Anyway, oh, yeah. so maybe that's not a good reading, but like at the same time, like that's her having issues, and these are how her issues are playing out, right? Mm-hmm. Which seems more true to the character to me. I just don't Agreed. get I'm, why she would become a totally different person because the, a cousin that she never cared about died. I'm okay with radically different reinterpretations of the character as long as they're interesting, mm-hmm. but the pacing on this just absolutely But it's not so interesting, it. but you get back to a question that you brought up like ages ago, like at the beginning of the podcast, Andrew, that, you know, like there's a lot of consequences to when we're going to radically re-envision female characters because there are so yes. few of them, yeah. right. right? And like when we take that's, one of Marvel's like maybe two yeah. really good female characters and be like, she was crap before, let's do her new version. I'm just like, oh my God, that's horrible. I, again, yeah, I think this is sort of the fundamental difference in how we're reading this. Yeah. I'm not reading this as... as changing the character i'm yeah. reading this as running the character through a distancing from what they were in order to get them back to that iconic yeah and i mean and that I does technically happen in the final issue of the yeah i think it's i said like i said in my introduction like i i think this is not the she hulk i want to read i want to read yeah. the slot one but yeah. I enjoy the slot one more. I enjoy the burn one more from having read Tamaki's. I think it's oh, an I, interesting alternate perspective. You said uh, before that a lot of this was mandated on her. Mm-hmm. I would be very interested in what this She-Hulk looks like for Tamaki if there wasn't all of these pressures. I mean, I yeah, I definitely got the sense she wanted to tell a story about superhero and trauma. I don't know... Why would she agree to write She-Hulk, though? It's not even... A, like, I just think fundamentally <laughs> it's not a good match for her. I don't know. I, We'll get to my pick, but I think she does a similar character very well in another context. Okay. Yeah. I don't. I don't <laughs> we'll know. I just her. she can do humorous characters. Oh yeah, Tamaki can do humor. There's there's no question. Yeah. Jen's just a particular type of person and a particular type of character, though. And again, I think she'd been a very well-established I mean, personality up to this point. Other than the fact that it's specifically the Hulk she's afraid of transforming into, this isn't a story that really needs Jen. You could do this with a number of characters who experience trauma. Well, that's kind of my issue with it. Because, I mean, I I think everything you're saying is right, Andrew. I just think that as a reset for this particular character, it's not driven by anything that was previously introduced about this character's psychology or backstory, Mm -hmm. or it just doesn't tie meaningfully into any of that. I just don't see this as being 
the way Jen would process trauma. It just doesn't... Yeah, I, 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 I totally accept this. What I'm seeing sort of differently is for me, the inconsistency is what's establishing yeah. the contrast and that's yeah. what's making it interesting. Yeah. Now, just to do like one other really controversial point that you'll get really mad at me for. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I kind of feel like Tamaki is doing the Immortal Hulk before the Immortal Hulk starts coming no, out and getting that. a ton of praise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and to me, trying to isolate what the distinction is between those two things, I mean, it might come back to what well, you said. Well, honestly, this one's is more... Weird. Yeah, the, which... I mean, there's a marketing reason why you take the she out of She-Hulk, but also, I mean, this is certainly a story that has been done around Bruce, like the idea that he is absolutely afraid of turning into the Hulk. Mm -hmm. Whereas, as Anna says, Jen's relationship is defined as being at peace with the Hulk. But I think being at peace with the alter ego, coming back to the original metaphor, that means you're complete. That means you're resolved. I mean, I don't... Yeah, I... On my side, I don't have a problem with the premise of the story. The mm. execution falls so poorly to me. See, and for me, that that's where it shines. Just because, again, I, I'm reading a six-issue arc with one transformation into the Hulk. And I mean, I, I actually I care like about the, the character. I like the first six issues the most. It's when it gets into three issues of the food guy. Fair. And, like, that is a yeah. one-issue story. Yeah, I, I did think <laughs> that the, the... the first story arc was the strongest one for me. The last one was definitely the weakest. Well, yeah, the, there's a single issue of the slot run that's all from Titania's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I love that issue. Mm-hmm. I, I love the way it sets up... It actually gave Titania so much humanity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet they do a similar thing with this... Or Tamaki does a similar thing with this... A female mad scientist who injects herself with Hulk blood, and it falls really flat. I was like actively offended by that story arc as a female academic, as like a femme, <laughs> like as a woman in general. Like it was really deeply offensive. If it had been like a man writing it, I would have been like screaming about it. I gave her the benefit of the doubt based on her other work, but it was like deeply offensive. She's like this bimbo scientist that Jen like is just mocking in her head and then like I mean, uh, it doesn't seem like a character. Yeah. No. It, the, the parts don't come together. Right. And there were just Which is a problem when the character is, again, multiple issues rather than... Mm-hmm. I, I don't disagree with you. I, I do think the first arc is by far the strongest. Yeah. Like, like not even close the strongest. And I think it's the one that does the interesting things that I'm pulling from the Tamaki yeah. run. The, the, the things that I think are important for the character moving forward with it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, when, when the She-Hulk TV series comes out, I, I, I want it to be slot. I don't want a fourth season of Jessica Jones in She-Hulk yeah. form. Oh, God, no. <laughs> And I'm, I'm saying this as, like, Alias is one of my all-time favorite comic books, but we need diversity in female superheroes. They right. can't all be the same kind of tough woman. She-Hulk, to me, is a very different kind of, like, powerful tough woman, and that's what I want. So I am doing our academic review for this month, and I am reviewing Wonder Women, Feminisms and Superheroes by Lillian S. Robinson from 2004, so the same year that the Slot and Babilo series came out, incidentally. Lillian Robinson's Wonder Women, Feminisms and Superheroes was originally published by Routledge in 2004, so incidentally the same year that the Slot Babilo She-Hulk series came out. Uh, This makes it one of the first academic books dedicated to analyzing the representation of female superheroes. It was also one of the first and most formative books I read on the subject back when I was an intern at a financial services company waiting to hear back about my applications to PhD school. It was also the final book Robinson published before she passed away from ovarian cancer in 2006. I mention this last part because I think it relates to how important this book is and how personal it feels at times. Robinson was an activist and a well-respected feminist Marxist scholar. 
She was an early advocate for intersectional scholarship and was, at the time of her death, principal of the Simone de Beauvoir Institute at Concordia University. In other words, she was a bona fide feminist scholar. That someone with this background of this stature would choose this as their final project means a lot to me. She clearly felt this topic was valuable and was, as usual, ahead of the curve in thinking so. Some of Robinson's book is inevitably dated. She has a long section on Carol Danvers, aka the current Ms. Mar Captain Marvel, rather, former Ms. Marvel, um, that isn't able to comment on that most recent and most arguably most significant evolution of the character into Captain Marvel, um, which didn't occur until 2012, so several years after this book was published. Yet I'd argue that most of the book, including the Danvers section, remains very useful and relevant, somewhat unfortunately so, since many of the political problems and contradictions that Robinson identifies continue to plague female superheroes today. The book begins with a personal essay in which Robinson articulates her complicated relationship with female superheroes. Robinson describes her childhood self, quote, relishing the dramatic irony of nerdy Clark Kent's interactions with people who were unaware they were really dealing with Superman, end quote. But she felt very differently about Wonder Woman. It was just Wonder Woman, Robinson writes, whose secret identity threatened to overwhelm and swallow up the heroic reality. I think I was afraid that one day I'd innocently open this month's issue and find Diana Prince waking up to announce that Wonder Woman was only a dream after all. Following this essay, the book proceeds chronologically, with chapters focusing on the Marston Peter Wonder Woman comics from the 1940s, Marvel's comics from the 1960s, and finally a chapter on contemporary female superheroes, which, given that this book came out in 2004, means female superheroes largely from the 1990s. This includes a lengthy discussion of John Byrne's sensational She-Hulk series. For my money, Robinson articulates the possibilities and problems of Byrne's She-Hulk as well as anybody ever has. Robinson argues that She-Hulk has a, quote, exuberant sexual subjectivity that may be read in a positive sense as a declaration of women's right to the assertion of desire. She also notes, however, that it is, quote, rather depressing that, the assertion, that this assertion coincides so seamlessly with mainstream commercial representations of male sexuality. It is as if gender equality in sexual terms merely means that women were free to be sexual in the way that, for instance, Playboy defines the norm visually primed, ever youthful, recreational, and exclusively hetero." End quote. Robinson defines Burns She-Hulk as the preeminent post-feminist female superhero, and that she affirms self-objectification as a form of empowerment and largely rejects sisterhood in favor of more individualistic forms of power. Forget the glass ceiling, Burns She-Hulk punches her way through steel doors and doesn't need anybody's help to do it. For better or worse, She-Hulk example compels us to think about what female strength does or might mean, and of course, what it does or might look like. What I appreciate most about Robinson's book is her consistent emphasis on feminism and female empowerment as complicated, with different meanings to different people in different eras. I've read far too many books and listened to far too many conference papers in which female superheroes are treated as either too obviously sexist to ever appeal to female readers, or empowering simply because they have powers. Robinson affirms, through her own example and through her rigorous scholarship, the deep meaning and relevance that female superheroes can have for female and feminist readers, despite their frequent inadequacies, which Robinson never shies away from. Robinson argues that, quote, Wonder Woman functions best not as a manageable goal, but as an ongoing story we tell ourselves, end quote. And she closes her book with a hint of optimism about the future stories she unfortunately did not get to read or write. The question remains, writes Robinson, as to whether the many narrative and stylistic variations in which the postmodern comics expose us merely substitute form for content, new ways of reiterating the now less than revolutionary notion that women can be powerful and that there is nothing left to prove or fight for. 
If this version of superheroism is no longer enough, what future stories might a comic book Amazon tell us and provoke us to tell? End quote. Hopefully, the discussion we've had today speaks to that question, at least a little bit. And we'll close up the episode with some recommendations. Based on this pairing, what are some comics that you would recommend for our listeners? Andrew? Uh, I'm going to recommend um, the more recent Catwoman series by Joelle Jones. Uh, Jones became very famous for her uh, just stunning illustrations on Tom mm-hmm. King's Batman. was one of the really strong elements of that otherwise divisive run. Uh, and in Catwoman, we see her similarly taking on an iconic character, trying to um, make her function as a solo hero as opposed to a supporting character in other narratives, as She-Hulk often is, outside of some of the runs that we were talking about. And also kind of a reinvention of the character and, and finding new ground um, by which this character can um, uh, sort of move forward. Sounds good. Yeah, um, I want to read that. Um, just beautiful art. No, yeah. Mm. Well, see, we were just talking about that it's hard. A couple of us have Marvel Unlimited and I don't have something for DC, mm. so I often miss out on DC stuff. Well, anyway. I read that first issue and just beautiful. Oh, geez, I, I should read that. I wanted to recommend a series that I brought up a couple of times today, um, the Charles Soule and Javier Pulido a She-Hulk series from, I believe, 2014. Um, it's all new She-Hulk, I believe, was the original title of that series. There's 12-ish issues. It might not have made it right. quite to 12. Um, it was a very short-lived series. Um, I love the art in it. Um, it's a really fun take on She-Hulk. It's kind of that kooky law office thing again, but um, very different than Slot's series, um, in large part because of the change in artwork. And we get some legal drama in that one as well, which is always fun. Um, That is my recommendation. Uh, I've got two to recommend. First, on the line of litigious things, Batten Lash's Supernatural Law, which was kind of doing uh, Slot's She-Hulk before it existed, rather than making exploring what does it mean to apply legal concepts to superheroes, it does the same thing with older Hollywood monster creatures, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I would also recommend, see, uh, as um, I probably made clear, I was not a big fan of Tamaki's <laughs> She-Hulk run, and I was like, is she always like this when she's writing superheroes? Uh, so I read her recently released graphic novel with Steve Pugh, Harley Quinn Breaking Glass. And it's a very different take on Harley Quinn in that reimagines her and the cast around her as high school students. But I think it does a very good job of capturing the essence of the character. I could see her being a lot better on a series where she got to be kind of like outside the main continuity mm-hmm. a little bit more, which is one of the central problems with the she And series. I think she's particularly well known for exploring these issues in relation to teen characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to check that out too. Good Rex, guys. We would like to thank the Games Institute for the space and St. Jerome's for their equipment. If you'd like to contact us, we are at three panel contrast that's the number three panel contrast on twitter next time we will be having a x-rated feature with at the asgardian wars by chris claremont paul smith and art adams and the combined miniseries house of x and power of x by jonathan hickman pepe larez rb silva and marty garcia